I've got my rights, why should his conscience dictate my behavior? In a culture that worships personal rights, does Christ call us to be willing to sacrifice our freedom for the sake of another? Romans 14, 12 and following gives us not Dave Wurtzen's answer, but the Apostle Paul's strong advice to arrogant believers who think they only have to worry about themselves. This week's message is titled, My Rights Versus Stumbling Blocks. Let's begin with two college students at the University of North Texas trying to decide how to spend a Friday night. Cody was relieved. He was a freshman up in North Texas. He had just finished his first week of classes. You know, that's the week where your teachers give you all the assignments. They tell you all the stuff you're supposed to do. And unlike high school, you've just got to remember. You've got to test three weeks from now. You've got to paper eight weeks from now. And so Cody's kind of recovering from all that. And it was time to relax on the weekend. No curve, no screwball. They've been thrown at him strong enough that he couldn't hit. And he was really, like Friday afternoon, as he started walking back toward his dorm room up there in Denton, he's thinking, I'm okay. Man, I'm going to make it this semester. Samuel, one of his buddies that he met in his his, uh, introduction to English, English 1 class, or college writing one, which really means everything you didn't learn in high school and in grammar school about English, you now need to learn. And uh, Samuel sat right next to him. And suddenly Samuel says, hey, Cody, we're going over to Cindy's house. She's from Highland Park, which interpreted means she's got a TV in her apartment with her roommates that stretches from wall to wall. And we want you to come. We're going to run a video tonight. We want you to come out. And Samuel was a really neat guy, and Cody was glad that he introduced him. In fact, Samuel said, Cody, you need to learn a little bit about my people. And what he meant by that is Samuel was Jewish. He'd come down in North Texas because of the musical school. He was really into jazz, and he was actually a Brooklyn Jewish kid that ends up in Texas. But there was another twist in Samuel's life is during his high school career, he went over and studied at the University of Haifa, And uh, he actually lived in Israel. And while he was in Haifa, he came in contact with a lot of Russian Jews who had emigrated because of the persecution against them. And now that some of the doors were open, they ended up in Israel, in Haifa. And he went one one Saturday for Shabbat, you know, as a New York kid, Jewish kid. He wasn't really so much into that. But when you're in Israel, you want to put on especially your Jewish convictions. And so he went to what he thought was just a normal Jewish service. It ended up that it was a group of Messianic Russian Jews, and they had come to know Yeshua as their Messiah. And as the course, after several, several months of being exposed to these Russian Jews and seeing the power of Yeshua, you know, he'd been taught as a kid Jesus was a cuss word, and now, or something for the Goyim, for the Gentiles, but now... He trusted Yeshua, which just means Joshua, the deliverer, same name as Jesus. He trusted the Savior that was born in Bethlehem as his own Messiah. And now he's in North Texas. And Cody is interacting with him. 
And so Cody said, hey, well, what are we going to watch, Samuel? What do you want to watch? He said, oh, we're going to watch Schindler's List, because that's what I mean. You need to get to know my people. It's a movie that's about the Holocaust, and it's a credible, powerful story of redemption, because this materialist, this guy Schindler that just lives for himself, he's a con artist that's just using the Nazis to make big bucks during the war, but somehow he's seduced into redeeming. And he ends up redeeming 1,200 Jews. He pays the money, has them work in his factory, and he saves their life. So what we're going to do is we're going to watch the film, and then we're going to interact. That's what good college students do, and that's why I use that highfalutin idea of being seduced into redemption. Cody suddenly scratches his head and says, isn't Schindler's List R-rated? Man, there's some pretty strong violence, and isn't there some nudity in Schindler's List? And Samuel's saying, yeah, you know, there is. You see, Cody was from a strong evangelical family. They had very strong convictions about what you said before his eyes. In fact, Cody had learned a verse in Awana. You know, I've given my heart completely over to God from the book of Proverbs. And I will only set before my eyes those things that are pleasing to the Lord. And Cody's thinking this. So it's decision time. It's decision time for Cody And it's decision time for Samuel. Now, I want to ask you, as we think about this story that I just told you, based upon what you know so far in the book of Romans, and you can turn to Romans chapter 14, who would you say in that that meeting up in North Texas, who is the strong believer in that particular conversation, according to Paul? Somebody tell me. Who do you think was the strong believer in that conversation? Who was? Samuel was a strong believer, okay? Because in the area of entertainment, he has more freedom. He doesn't have as many scruples. He doesn't have as many preferences. He's arguing that for the sake of the power of the story, the sake of reality, he's thinking of the Jewish kid, hey, there's a lot of nakedness in the Old Testament. There's some pretty strong violence, And it fits in, and and it also relates a very powerful incident that happened. So he has more freedom, more freedom than some of you would have, all right? Who's the weaker believer in that story? Obviously, it is Cody. That doesn't mean that he is less significant. It doesn't mean that he's not as valuable. We must not jump to that, but his conscience is more delicate. Now, when Cody quotes from Proverbs... I want my heart to belong to the Lord. I want my eyes to belong to the Lord. Is that a good conviction in its conscience or a bad conviction? Tell me. It's a good conviction. So Cody and Samuel are going to be going to Denton Bible Church together. And they're going to be in the same college group together. And they've got to get along. How are they going to do that? How should Samuel relate to Cody? How should Cody relate to Samuel? In, in, in Romans chapter 14, let's look at it. We'll pick it up with verse 13. The Apostle Paul talks especially to Samuel in this passage as the strong believers. And he wants him to consider how he uses his freedom and how he doesn't use it to hurt another believer. So the very first thing that we're exposed to in this passage, and this, you could kind of summarize all that we're talking about this morning, is my personal rights versus the danger of being a stumbling block. And I want you to really understand that as an American, and I identify with you, 
So I don't want you to think I'm not struggling with it. I am very strong into, I've got my rights. Any of you ever said that? How many of you in your heart have ever said, I got my rights? How many of you said, man, I'm free? I went away to high school. I didn't get my freedom when I went to college. I went to Florida when I was 12. And I was gone from home. And my parents didn't know what I was doing half the time, even though I was at a Christian school. So freedom was really important to me. Man, I had freedom. I'd go from New York down to Florida all by myself with one friend. I had tons of freedom during my high school years. So I want you to know that I'm committed to freedom. But I need to be really careful. So this message this morning is really convicting for me because through the years, I've been more in the strong believer context, not the weaker believer, not hung up on a lot of rules and regulations and food laws and religious holidays. I never did like that. So I am in the class. So I need to really listen. Some of you need to really listen. The Apostle Paul begins with something very powerful. He says says in verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. As we sit here this morning, and as we're interacting in our classes, and as we relate to each other, it's very important for us not to become the judge of one another. We need to be very careful. Well, I don't like them. They're not pleasing to the Lord. How could that person come here today? Anybody ever do that? I think they have wrong motives. When you make those kind of statements, when I say, oh, they're just, they're just young, they'll get over it, you know, I wish they just didn't have that particular view, I make a judgment about my brother. And when I make that judgment, I would draw from them. Anybody ever been in a conversation where you felt yourself withdrawing from somebody because you're both judging each other? Anybody ever done that? What did Paul tell us to do? Stop doing that. Because it doesn't make any difference what my viewpoint is towards alcohol, food, music, entertainment. I'm not the judge. You're not going to come before me one day. All right, I'm going to evaluate you. I am the judge. I'm doing a guy's dissertation right now. I put notes all over his paper. Bad spelling. Thought doesn't make any sense. Would you love me to be your professor? I'm his judge. By the way, I don't want to hurt him. I'm trying to make his paper stronger because that's my, my responsibility. I am his judge on his doctoral paper, but I am not his judge in his walk with the Lord. Amen? And either are you. And so that's something this morning, Paul's coming to all of us and saying, let's be really careful that we don't start living judging one another. Instead, and he specifically looks at the strong believer, instead, we need to be concerned not to put a stumbling block, not to put a trap in the life of another believer. As an American, I live for my rights. I live for my freedoms. And I want you to feel the Holy Spirit of God, now that I've come to Jesus, now that I've trusted his cross, now that I've received resurrected life, Paul is calling me to a radical life. It is a revolutionary life. You live in a culture where it's about you. You live in a culture where it's about your freedoms. And I want to do my thing sexually, job-wise, family-wise, all kinds of ways our culture worships my rights. I've got my individual preferences, and don't you get in the way. 
As a born-again believer, the Apostle Paul says, no. Jesus entered your life, and he changed you. And now what you're concerned about is not your own freedoms, because you're secure in those freedoms. What could be more free than as I stand before you today, I am totally forgiven. I've been totally convicted that I'll never obey God's law in my own strength. In fact, I'm guilty of sin, and I'm condemned eternally. And the precious Jesus took my place. And when the Father says, David deserves to die eternally and be eternally rejected from me, Jesus says, Father, you and I both know the plan. And all Jesus does is hold up his hands, and his Father says, praise, praise, praise. That's my kid. David's now my kid because of what my precious son did on Calvary. And resurrection powers entered David's life, and he has changed. And that's what I covet for every one of you, and a lot of you have entered with me in that incredible freedom. What does that freedom call us to do? It calls us to not exploit our freedom. Instead, it calls us to start caring about one another. And so we're really careful to not put it something black. I've done a lot of hiking, like in the Adirondacks, for example. And as you're walking up to Mount Marcy, you walk for like eight hours. And not like in Colorado where you get up above the tree line, you, you hike for eight hours in the midst of, of dense forests where even in, as the morning sun begins to break through, it's dark underneath this canopy of trees. And in the Adirondacks on the path, there will be big roots that suddenly go along the path. And my kids, Jonathan and Joel especially, just laugh like crazy. Because how many of you have noticed, like, I'm, I'm walking and I trip. I do that on just plain, flat pavement. So you can imagine what it's like on a path. These great big roots, and then there will be like a stone, and I stumble, you know. Especially before I got my glasses, because I was too proud. You know, I couldn't even see what was coming. That's what Paul is saying as we're walking together, as Jonathan, Joel, and their dad are hiking through life. Be careful that you're not the person that's putting a stumbling block in someone's path. Because after you hike for eight hours and you're tired and you suddenly put a great big branch in front of someone's shin and they fall on their face and hit their head and you have to get stitches and you're that far in the woods, it's a dangerous thing. You feel that? The Apostle Paul wants us to be concerned as we're walking together down the journey of our hike towards heaven that we don't trip each other up, that we don't put a stumbling block. Another illustration is the trap, that we don't trap one another. And this is a very real threat. So the Apostle Paul says, instead of exerting our freedom, being very careful not to judge one another, instead we make up our mind, we make a decision not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother or your sister's way. Now the Apostle Paul talks to us about something very interesting. I want all of you to ask yourself, where do you think evil is located? Where is sin located? And a lot of you, a lot of you feel that there are certain material things that are evil in themselves. Like I was taught as a little kid that this particular beat on the drum was evil. And I was taught it's evil because it came from New Orleans, and it's right out of African voodoo. 
When I went to class with Tony Evans, that gets to be a very interesting discussion. Because my idea that only white Caucasian music is pure and sacred and his African-American music is evil, maybe there's an evil inside of me. But I want you to think, in fact, right here in this room, some of you have the idea that there's certain sounds that in themselves are evil. There's a lot of you that have an idea that alcohol, ethanol, is evil in itself. In other words, what we need to do is just ban out alcohol everywhere and everything will be all right. Because if we can just keep everybody away from ethanol, it'll be all right. Very few of you decided that sex is evil. But I want you to know that in our Christian heritage, a lot of believers have decided that sex is evil. And that's why you have major parts of the Christian tradition that don't ever have a sexual relationship, even within the marriage relationship, because sex in itself is dirty. And I want you to listen to what Paul says, because this is very important for you to understand about the material world. In Genesis chapter 1, it says God created the light, and God saw that the light was... God caused the continents to rise up out of the seething, chaotic oceans, and he made dry land, and he made the plants to suddenly begin to grow in a beautiful way, and he he covered it with beautiful grass and, and produced flowers and everything else, and God saw that it was, and God created your body. He fashioned a man's body out of the dust of the ground, and then he took from the rib, and he fashioned this gorgeous woman, and he said, enjoy, and God said, it is good. The material world that we live in is good. Amen? It's very important to understand. Like some of you in your life, right now, some of you feel that certain foods are evil. Now, now, if you have a heart problem and you're eating a Kentucky Fried Chicken every day, that's not good for you because you're hurting the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know that, that there's not particular food groups. As I've been your pastor for many years, Midlothian Bible Church goes through the protein phase, the fat phase, and the carbohydrate phase. And you eliminate one of those food groups because for some reason, if you eliminate one of those food groups, people lose weight. You'll lose weight, and I'll lose weight, if we stop putting so much in the tank and we walk. Ask your cardiologist. It's not good for you to go like a yo-yo. So there's nothing wrong with carbohydrates. Amen? There's nothing wrong with fat foods when they're used in proper balance. There's nothing wrong with protein. God did say, my, you've heard me say, my favorite verse in the Bible is kill and eat. But I want you to know, you say, well, Dave, what are you talking about? The Apostle Paul tells us something very important. As one in the Lord Jesus, you are in Christ. I am fully convinced. Paul is one of the strong. He says, I'm fully convinced. And the NIV translates this, no food, but the Greek text literally says nothing. In this, no material thing. There are things that are evil. He's not saying that there isn't any evil, but he's saying that evil isn't located in material things. 
not in sounds, not in sight, not in food that you eat, not in drinks that you drink. That's what he's saying. He says, I've come to realize as one in Christ that there is no part of God's creation that is evil, that is impure, that is unclean. This is very, very important. Like the reason God gave the food laws in the Old Testament is not because pork is intrinsically bad for you. If that were so, then Jesus could never tell me as one of his children, by this Jesus declared all foods clean. My Savior would never declare pork clean if it was intrinsically evil and it would hurt me. And we're going to have pork for lunch because of the blessing of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. This is what the strong understand. In the Roman congregation, the strong understand that the food laws of the Old Testament were not because of intrinsic evil in food or in drink. But God was trying to show his people that you don't obey me. You disobey me. There is an intrinsic rebellion inside of me. And the, the, the clean laws and unclean laws in the Old Testament, one of the things, if you'll carefully study them, you're almost always unclean. Because you just can't keep the law. If a person, a married couple has had relationships the night before and you touch them when you come for worship, you're unclean. How in the world could you ever know that? You're unclean. What's the point of that? So you'll be like David. Lord, have mercy on me. I need you. I'm never going to get there by my obedience. The strong really understand the freedom we have in Christ. It's an incredible, marvelous truth. There's nothing in itself that's unclean. As one in the Lord, I'm fully convinced that nothing is unclean. But this is where the sin comes in. If anyone regards something as impure, as unclean, as not something that God would have me do, then for him, the person with a weak conscience about this area, and it's not a detrimental thing, in this context specifically, the Jewish believer that's now come to Christ, that all their life has been taught that ham sandwiches are evil, for them, because their conscience isn't clear, if they ate a ham sandwich, they would be saying, I'm going to eat a ham sandwich even though I don't think God wants me to have it. And I'm going to exert my freedom and my independence from God, and I'm going to eat this. That is spiritually poison. And Paul says we all need to be careful that we don't cause another believer to make that choice to do what's against their conscience. He says, do not by your eating destroy, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. I want you to feel the priority of this. The priority is, as I look around this room, as we interact together, as we eat in one another's homes, as I'm sitting across the table from you, The Apostle Paul wants me to understand I'm looking at someone who's so priceless that Jesus shed his blood for them. Isn't that incredible? And Jesus is saying, I need to be really careful because that brother or sister in Christ is so precious to Christ. And Christ gave his life so that they could be growing as his child, so that they could be moving into Christ's likeness. I want to be really careful not to do anything that would move them away from that intimate walk with Jesus. That's what I live for. As a mom and dad, boy, that's powerful. Are you living with your kids, being really careful that I don't do anything that causes one of my little ones to stumble? 
that doesn't, I don't do anything that would cause them to move away from a relationship with Jesus. That's powerful, isn't it? As a grandparent, am I living in Noah's little life as a grandfather, being really careful not to trap him or being really careful not to put a stumbling block? Because little Noah is not only precious as my grandson, but he's precious as someone for whom Christ died. Do you feel that priority? And that's the value that I want us to permeate my soul and I want it to permeate your soul. So we are very careful. We're looking upon one another. Christ died for them. I want to be really careful to do everything I can to enhance what God is doing in their life. So then in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, do not allow what you consider to be good your freedom in Christ, your ability to do things that a more scrupulous believer cannot. Don't let, and Paul calls that good. It is good. But don't let it be spoken against. Don't let it be slandered. In other words, for example, if I exercise my freedom, and, and putting it in the Roman context, if I go to an agape meal, and I bring ham sandwiches to the agape meal, and a bunch of Jewish believers, as we're getting ready to have communion, they break their scruples and they eat the ham sandwiches and then they have communion with their heart really troubled, feeling like, I'm not close to God, I just disobeyed God. Paul is saying that I made them take one step away from God and that step could keep moving them. Some of them can even abandon the faith. It's a very serious thing, right in our own church family. We can do things that cause a child of God that joined with us at one time and we cause them to stumble and then they move away. And they're no longer walking closely with God. And that would cause those that have really strong scruples to say, your freedom, look what your freedom does. Look what you did to another believer. And that would blaspheme the great joy, the great freedom that you have because of Christ setting you free. Does that make sense? So the Apostle Paul is teaching us how we, how we honor Christ and how we are really careful not to let even the freedom we have in Christ hurt someone so it becomes spoken of in evil. Now here's the priority. Now this is the core of the passage this morning. One of the things in your Christian life is you need to understand the core of your faith and then as you move away from that core, you understand that there's things on the periphery that believers are going to have a lot of disagreement about. At the center are your total priorities. And I ask you, what is the kingdom of God? What expresses God's heart in the world? What expresses the authority? When God is exercising his authority, what does it look like? When Jesus came to earth, Jesus said, Repent, turn around, the kingdom of God is here. I'm the kingdom, he would say. What was the kingdom like? How many of you like Jesus' kingdom? Wouldn't you like to live in a world where nobody's lame? Want to live there? Nobody had blind eyes. Don't you want to live in a kingdom where there's, there's no more genetic defects? And on and on I could go. How many of you like to live in a world where you grow to the ideal age of 58 See if you're still with me. No, 35. No, Jesus was probably about 37 when he, when he went home to be with his father. So let's say, you know, middle 30s. So how many of you are there? You're probably in the ideal age. Wouldn't you like to live in a world where forever and ever nobody gets old? 
In fact, you're not even in what you think of today. You're in a dimension that any beauty you see here on earth is going to be just minuscule compared to the beauty that you're going to enjoy in heaven. How many of you think that's a pretty good kingdom that's coming? Now, what's that kingdom rooted in? Here's the foundation of the kingdom, righteousness. What does righteousness mean? In the book of Romans, righteousness means that when you receive Jesus, that you have right standing because he poured his character into you and he placed you in Christ. And so now you stand right before God and then that expresses itself in right living in your life. God's kingdom is about allowing the righteousness of Jesus to flow through me. Isn't that powerful? How many of you think that's a pretty core belief? That's right at the center, isn't it? In other words, you can please God because you're already pleasing to God because you're united with Christ. And then as you live your daily life, we've been learning that we have the power to now fulfill the law. Remember, we studied Jesus now enables us to love one another as we love ourselves, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us because the power of the Spirit of Jesus is inside of us. So righteousness is the core of the kingdom. Another core of the kingdom is peace. What does peace mean? It means that in this room, why are we together as a church family? We have all different groups here, older folks, younger folks, different religions. You know, all, as we grow as a community, we'll have a lot of different races and everything. What brings us peace? God isn't angry with us anymore because we've received his son. We're now reconciled with God. That's the ultimate peace. That God's wrath doesn't any longer rest upon us. We're not estranged from him. There's now peace in our relationship with God. And your sense of peace deep in your heart flows out of the incredible peace that Jesus has given you because of the cross. Joy. How many of you want a kingdom of joy? Joy is this incredible freedom and celebrating that I'm now the child of God. It's not just some giddy emotion. It's this deep-seated thing that I know that no matter what I might face, in the end, it's going to be okay, and I can have joy. How many of you think those are three really powerful core values? Love is the center. Agape, Christ, self-sacrificial love is what this whole section is about. And this is right at the core. So I don't live trying to force upon another believer what movies I go to. I don't need to argue with them about whether they go to PG or G, you know, or PG-13 or R. I don't have to be all involved in arguments about music, about diets, about all that kind of thing, because the kingdom is righteousness, joy, and peace. Now he drives a lesson home. He says this. He says, because anyone who serves Christ in this way allowing the Holy Spirit to produce the righteousness of Jesus in us, the peace of Jesus in us, and the joy of Jesus in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God. How many of you want to live a life that's pleasing to God? And I want you to know something. You notice it says, you know what? If we live like Paul's teaching us, most of your unbelieving friends will be attracted to it. Notice it says, and you'll be approved by men. One of the things in Romans, there's a lot of believers that say, I don't care what, what unbelievers think. Well, there's elements of truth in that. You don't need to care if your unbelievers think you're an idiot because you believe that Christ rose again from the dead because you're not, because that's the ultimate hope. But I want you to know that, that the early church, the power of Jesus transforming their life caused them to become very magnetic 
to the Roman Greek world. And that's what I covet for Midlothian Bible Church. I want it to grow more and more and more. That as soon as someone hears, hey, you're going to Midlothian Bible Church, the first thing they think of, wow, they're full of joy. How did you get joy like that? Wow. They really care about each other. They don't just live for themselves. They really, man, it's like you, you don't even have to be blood. It's, it's this incredible, wondrous thing There's, that even if I move here from Oklahoma, from California, suddenly I find that Texans enable me to love, to be loved, to be a family because of Jesus. That's magnetic. We need to pray that that'll grow. So it'll be approved by men. Then he says this, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace, to mutual building up of one another. We live to build what Christ is doing in this family. Now he comes back to where we started about not putting a stomach block. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. He makes his point again. Remember he said again, there's no material thing that's impure. It's okay. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to stumble. And that changes with your situation. This is one case where if you're in a situation where there's not a weaker brother there and you have the freedom, then Paul's advice wouldn't apply. You'll be in another situation where there is a weaker brother present and because of love, you don't exercise your freedom. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want to be really careful as I live my life and don't use this as a sledgehammer on one another because it has to do with an individual choice that I live in order to meet the needs and to express sacrifice and love for another believer and to build up the relationship with Christ. So I'm really careful not to do anything that would hinder that work of God in their life. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Now, Paul isn't saying that I shouldn't teach you about this. But if you go to a Messianic congregation that's all kosher, if I do, I have some relatives that are very much in that congregation. I'm not to walk into the Messianic congregation and as they're all eating kosher food to stand up and say, hey, I have a doctorate degree in Old Testament. And I want you to know that you've totally misunderstood the kosher laws. In fact, you're very inconsistent. You keep some of them and you don't keep others. And so I get in a great big fight at this Messianic congregation before we have the Lord's Supper about using my degree and my pride to demolish a congregation. Is that right? No. It's not saying that I shouldn't teach you today. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul's teaching you today, isn't he? I'm just following his example. Don't believe what I teach you. Believe what Paul teaches you. Amen? I really mean that. Believe what Paul teaches you. So Paul isn't telling me, well, Dave, you don't ever teach about this. What he's saying, Dave, when you're in a situation... And I've blown this at times. I've been in situations where I know that they think all alcohol is wrong. So in my message, I make sure that I lambaste that faith. Is that right or wrong? It's wrong. And it's because I'm still a rebellious kid, even in my 50s. And I want to exploit my freedoms. And then it cuts me off from being able to minister to those people. And instead of building them up in Christ, my gift of teaching can't be expressed. So I have to learn from this passage. So do you. One of the best things you can learn is when to keep your mouth shut. And Mary will say, Dave, hearty amen to that. 
Because I'm a teacher, and teachers teach and use their mouth at times when they need to keep it between themselves and God. Really pray for me in this. One of the hardest things is for me to learn when to keep my convictions to myself. When it's time to teach and when it's time just to be present and to listen. So you could all pray for me in that. And I probably need to pray for some of you, a few of you in that, right? But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is what it means. It doesn't, everything that is not of faith is sin, this is what it means. If I, as a believer, let's go back to my beginning illustration. Should Cody go and watch Schindler's List that night or not? No. In fact, what Samuel did is he remembered a verse from Romans that says, I love my brother. Don't judge your brother, but be really careful not to put a stumbling block or a trap in his, in his way. So what Samuel did is, you know what, Cody, I've been thinking about it. Because Samuel knew as soon as Cody mentioned, isn't that R-rated? Samuel knew. Cody got a sensitive conscience. So Samuel suddenly said, you know what? I've seen Schindler's List over and over again. I've debated that movie with my Jewish friends even before I came to know Yeshua was my Messiah. Tell you what, have you ever seen Amazing Grace? It's the story of William Wilberforce, and I think it'd be more fun for us to watch Amazing Grace tonight, and then we can debate with the girls about the ethics of using a parliamentary sleight of hand in order to eventually outlaw slavery in the British Empire. And he puts his arm around Cody, and they go to Cindy's house. What are you causing your brother to stumble in? What's your attitude this morning? What are some areas that I've been teaching you? I tried to share with you some of my areas. What are some of the areas that are producing discord in this body of Christ that cause us not to have peace together? What can we do to build each other up? I want to challenge you to let God's Holy Spirit move you. How many of you think in the end, if I live my life in love with the cross, in love with people that believe in that resurrection, and I live being really careful to keep building them up. And I'm not hung up at all about whether or not I have my personal freedoms to do certain things or not, because I want it to be about righteousness, about joy and peace. How many of you think when you go home to be with Jesus, that'll be a life well lived? So let's do it by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much. It awes me again to just be in a church family where I don't have any feelings of restriction over the exposure of this text. I don't feel that I need to hedge on the power of the application that the Apostle Paul has, and I want to thank you for that. Lord, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would make me more in love, not just with you, Lord Jesus, but make me more in love with your people. Around dinner tables, Lord, help me not to be interested in winning arguments, but in building up a brother or sister, of us uniting together around joy and righteousness and peace. Lord, really protect me from doing anything that would cause this family to stumble 
I pray, Lord, that you would help Mary and I as grandparents to not hinder or trap our grandkids. I'd ask you, Lord, that as, a, as an older pastor, that you would protect me from doing anything that would cause my younger brothers working with me to stumble in their faith. I'd ask you, Lord, that your sweet Holy Spirit would powerfully convict about some of the things that my brothers and sisters are doing that are causing fellow believers to stumble. What Paul's been telling us is please remember that your brothers and sisters have received amazing grace at the cross. They've received amazing grace with the Holy Spirit come to live in their life. Help us to be willing to give up some of our material preferences because we're really in love with one another. In Jesus' name.